Falsha, 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 Akharja Gale. Welcome back to the Rebel Matters Podcast. And if this is your first time tuning in, then welcome to the Madhouse. This week's guest on the show is Mary Hickson. I kind of played the friend card to get her to come and do the show because I don't think she would have done it otherwise. But Mary is the soul behind the Sounds from the Safe Harbour Festival that runs every two years in Cork. And also People, which is a gathering of artists over in Germany and other national and international festivals. The reason that I wanted to have a chat with Mary is because I was a part of the Sounds from the Safe Harbour Festival last year. It just so happened that the time the festival was on was kind of coinciding with one of the storytelling nights that we were running in the social space in Ackley. So we, they kind of kindly asked us to, would did we would we be interested in coming in as part of their program, which we were obviously delighted to do, and then we had a storytelling night in the back room of Ackley by candlelight. And we had a lovely wee crew there. There was some of the regulars, and Claire Sands, who's been a guest on the podcast, was there and sang a song. Susan O'Neill was there, who sings with King Kong Company, which is kind of connected to the episode that. We had recently with Mark Graham from King Kong Company. Junior brother was there. And we all had a bit of crack. It just so happened to be a few weeks after the Jim Jam party that we had in Ackley. So there was a few half empty or half full bottles of whiskey and gin sitting in the back room. So once the storytelling was night, night was kind of coming to an end, we uh, started turning to the leftover whiskey and funny enough, Susan O'Neill's hair caught on fire because it went into one of the candles and Junior Brother extinguished it. And it's not every day that you see something like that happening. Anyway, the reason that I asked Miri would she be a guest on the podcast was because it was such an unreal experience to be a part of the Sounds from a Safe Harbour Festival because of the vibe and the atmosphere around it. And the whole kind of philosophy of the festival, which we talk about in the show. But I also thought it's really good timing because of the fact that the mass gatherings in the country and further afield are still a thing of the not so near future, really. And I think that once the restrictions of the lockdown are lifted, well, I hope so anyway, that we're going to be gathering in smaller groups and having more intimate festivals. And in some ways, going back to the real roots of what festivals are supposed to be. Well, I suppose it's only my own opinion of what they're supposed to be, but I, I like to think of them as people coming together in celebration and to mark the start of a new era or the end of an era. Like the shedding of old old skin and the dawning of new skin, the dawning of a new day. And there's no two ways about it, but whenever the restrictions are lifted, that's what we're going to need here is some get togethers with our friends to celebrate the fact that we're after coming through this very difficult period of time and uh, celebrate the fact that we're still here and 
excited to move forward into the future together. And I think that Mary's approach to bringing people together in that kind of format is exactly what we're going to need and it's going to become even more important as we move forward into the, the coming months. And as it turns out, I think that I was right and that it was a good call and you'll probably agree with that whenever you listen to this episode. Now, you might also have noticed that episode 69, the first one, which was out last week, is no longer online. That is because of circumstances that are beyond my control and that I can't really talk about too much. But needless to say, if you listened to the episode last week, then you'll be aware that it was a discussion around a fairly sensitive subject and the whole idea of the podcast is to give people a platform to tell their stories and the last thing that I ever want the podcast to be is something that is a pain in the ass for a person who becomes a guest on the show or that causes any trouble for them or that puts them in any form of danger so as a precautionary measure I've had to take down the episode from last week so just in case you were wondering where did the original episode 69 go then that's where it went I might put it out again if it's possible in the future and maybe a slightly edited format but we'll see the other thing to add in about that is that the chapter that I read from the book that we're reading at the minute, The Last of the Name by Charles McGlinchey, I'm going to add that chapter in again to the end of this episode and also the next chapter. So there'll be two two chapters of the book at the end of this episode after the outro music if, the, if you want the wee bit of story time. And another thing about the podcast, which is a bit of really nice and cheerful news is we got a big shout out on the hot press website the other day as 10 essential podcasts to listen to to see you through to the end of the lockdown and i added the little piece that they put up on the rebel matters instagram page so it's really nice to get that little bit of recognition and also very nice that we were included in the music podcast section i know we've got quite a few music or art-related episodes, which is class. But it's also good that we have the other ones in there that are uh, about different topics and that we were still included in that hot press list. So, Garamila Maigov, let's. And also, Garamila Maigov to everyone who has been listening to the podcast and sharing it, and especially those who have come on board as patrons to the show. It's making the Rebel Matters podcast possible at the minute the support that the show is getting from Patreon and I've got a goal of getting 100 patrons up on the Patreon account which is patreon.com forward slash rebel matters we've got 32 at the minute so thanks a million to everyone who's come on board we're just about a third of the way there to the goal so if you want to help keep the rebel matters podcast on the road and support the show then you can go to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters and if you're not in a position to do that, then that's fine because you know that the show is free on all platforms and also on rebelmatters.ie. So, shin shin.
anyway, let's let's get stuck into this chat with Mary Hickson. Oh, one more thing, lads. So I don't know if you've been listening over the last number of weeks. You might remember that I had to take everything off the hard drive of my computer to make space so that I could make the episode a few weeks ago because my computer was completely full. So I put everything onto this external hard drive, a terabyte of stuff all together, and then emptied my computer. And my computer is flying along now, like it's brand new. But I was outside in the gardener the day after that I transferred the stuff onto the hard drive and the hard drive fell about 30 centimetres and then it doesn't read anymore and I brought it to the shop and they couldn't fix it. So if anybody out there knows a really good data recovery company or whatever, or people that are really good at fixing hard drives, hit me up on social media because I really could do with getting the stuff back off that hard drive if it is at all possible. Anyway, that's another story. Let's get stuck into this episode with Mary Hickson. And as usual, there is the bit of story time at the very end after the outro music. Stay safe, lads. Keep looking out for each other and enjoy the show. Well, the reason that kind of thought would be really cool for us to do a podcast together was just, I suppose it kind of came from um, kind of being a part of the Science from Safe Harbour Festival last year, like, and just seeing how unreal it was, like, because the, the kind of sense that I got from it was that uh, it was like, it was like a little party for Cork mm-hmm. and all the people around Cork who were doing cool stuff. And I just kind of got looked around a few times and seen loads of people that I know who are all doing different things on really class and then through the Science Museum of Harbour there's like all were kind of had this opportunity to do we do 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 stuff together or do stuff and show everybody else what they were doing and mm. it was I think like as far as kind of my like the thing that I get the most from festivals personally it's that it's it's whenever people are coming together and it's kind of like a release and I get the chance to get to know people a bit better and stuff like that and see what people mm-hmm. are doing that you know that you might not even have known that they were doing that before yeah, and yeah. I thought that was class so um I came with maybe a good place to start with maybe like how, how did you end up being involved in this because like that's kind of how we got to know each other Mm-hmm. I guess as well was through that and um just seems like you're involved in so many things and yeah. so how did you end up doing the stuff that you're doing now Jesus start off uh, with a nice easy one well sounds from a safe harbor um that happened when I was still with the opera house and it was born from a desire to celebrate the community of Cork because 
being within those four walls, you can't help but look out and see what everybody else is doing and how how beneficial it would be for us all to come together for moments in the year to like celebrate each other and make something together. So like sitting in my corridor office was literally on a corridor looking out on the river um, and thinking about the everyman and the Triskel and the people over in Civic Trust. I was like, we're all working in these silos with this kind of don't copy my homework mentality when we should be pulling together to make something for Cork. Because I do believe we need to be ambitious down in Cork. You know, we need to, we need, we need to think bigger than Cork, particularly in the art sector. Um, and I wanted to make something big, bigger than, bigger that I could make on my own in the Opera House and bring the community together. So that, it's interesting that you say that's what you felt. That's what we wanted everybody to feel. Um, and you always have a dream for a festival that sometimes doesn't quite hit in the right way, but certainly with the last sounds from a safe harbor, it hit all of the the points that I of intention, which was really rewarding to see happen, like the emotion, the connectivity of people, the river, um, the heart, I think came through very strongly. So was that the third one? That, that was the third one, but we do it every other year. So it's every so second year. Because I was thinking, like, so six years ago, that would have been 2015. 2015 was the first one. Yeah. And, like, I'm just trying to, So I moved to Cork in 2010. And, like, and that's, so that's 10 years from January now. Like, and, like, Cork has changed so much in 10 years. Like, yeah. I'm not to say, I'm not trying to say that Cork was a shithole whenever I moved here or anything, but, like, it was just after we were kind of still going through the whole fallout from the recession and stuff. And when I, you know, walk up places like Barrack Street or Washington Street or even Patrick Street, like there was so many more like empty units. And just to think of like everything that's happened in those last, the last 10 years, really, like and Cork has come on big time, like hasn't it? Like? Yeah, yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah. I mean, I'm afraid of what's about to happen now. All that success. You just hope we can maintain it. I do fear for some of the smaller businesses reopening and stuff and whether we're going to take, you know, those 10 steps back or forward that we took, where are we going to, where's the starting point going to be when the world opens and, you know, it's like kind of fearful for that. Actually, even on that, like I'm fearful for sounds next year. I've spent the last couple of days cancelling events all over the world and Thinking it made me think about sounds from a safe harbor and how viable it's going to be as an event in t- t- 2021, even you know. Like, one thing that I've been thinking about, which would be interesting to kind of hear your take on it uh, about festivals and stuff. And I know, like, anybody who likes going to festivals is probably clinging on to by the skin of their teeth to the hope that there's going to be some festivals on this year. Like, but uh, to go back to like the whole idea of where festivals came from, and when you look at like the sort of like ancestral festivals that we have, they all kind of seem to come at like times whenever, you know, at the start of, at the start of the harvest or the end of the harvest or the start of spring or at the end of the year or the start of the year. We're all periods of time when people have come through this kind of journey together and then they're like, this is the chance to like release it or and you know like move on to the next phase. And it seems like whenever we do get to come th- through the this like period of uh, you know like everything that's happening right now is going to be a time whenever like we're going to go back to like the primal function of a festival 
In yeah, I hope so. I mean, just trying to imagine how the world is going to be immediately after, or if there's ever going to be an after, it's hard to tell. But like when the world starts to reopen, it's hard to imagine how people are going to feel about being in large groups together. Um, I think, I think for a, maybe a year or two, people are going to behave very differently. Festivals are going to be very different. Um, even though people are going to want it like hell, like they're going to want it so much harder. How we're going to behave in a, in a large group context is hard. To, it's hard to imagine even just getting on a fucking transatlantic flight. Now I can't imagine going to the States. I would be there every other month right, up and for the last like four or five years. And now I'm like, Oh, it'd be weird to go to the States. Like it's this alien concept. I came back from the States just before this started. I came back early because we were out there with kneecap and all the gigs got cancelled and we were like, right, let's get the fuck out of here. And we uh, came back on the, left on the 14th of March when we were due to, I was due to fly to to Palestine on the 18th of March. That got shut down. So it's like, fuck it, I'll go to Peru instead on the 18th. And then I'm glad it didn't because that went on complete military shutdown like immediately. So we all came back on the 14th. But like the airplane was so empty. We were lying across the seats, you know, across the way, just sleeping, like, fully horizontal. It was just such a, a mad, eerie experience. They even to be in the airport, nobody yeah. there. And then the airplane was, I'd say, 25% full or something like that. But yeah. um, here, you know the thing you were saying there about when you were in the opera house and you are seeing everyone who was doing their own thing and yeah. trying to do something to get people to come together? Uh, it's... Where did that where does that come from? And you like because that's you're right. I like most people do work by themselves and just want to look after their own patch of land or whatever. But it's it's the it's more rare for someone to be like right, okay, everyone, let's go and go together. Um, I think where it comes from in me is like my first professional job in the arts was in festivals. So that was like my foundation was like being in a, a situation where you're trying to imagine how things can be bigger and better. So going into a, going into the behind four walls was kind of very restrictive for me in the way that I would would have been trained to think about events. Um, So while I was there, I was constantly looking out, but then looking out to look into, so looking out to see, uh, like we started working with Cork Adurka with the, the, the theater company that were doing site specific outdoor work. We were trying to bring them in. We were trying to just, do things in a different way to make the audience look at it differently and the artists to engage with the work differently. But, um, yeah, I think for me, it comes from my foundation in, in arts management was in festivals. So I have, I always want to look out and I, I, and I know having done that job, I have no regrets. It was one of the biggest things I've done in my career to date, but I know that I don't want to be behind four walls anymore. It's not how my mind thrives. It's not how my creative spirit lives and wants to be. Um, I like to, I like to think of a, of a, of a larger community, you know, but I can, even in that, when you're, when you're thinking about when behind the four walls of the opera house, you're constantly thinking about the community of Cork in that the audience, like the, the other side of the work. But, um, it's always much more exciting for me to, to think of if, if you bang a drum on your own, you're only going to get so much noise out of it. But if we all bang it together, it's just, I always wanted the sound to be bigger than the place. 
Um, and I think that that's when that's when Cork really thrives because there's so many there's so many incredible people making incredible things. And if we can find the the things to click it together, it's just always more powerful. You know, like working with Mahel Mara and Dorothy Cross and working with all of the venues and the, the passion and the embrace from everybody is always so powerful. It's um it's definitely made me believe and want to do sounds from the safe harbor as my only job all the time. But um, it's just unrealistic unrealistic financially. Like Cork, when you think about it like like I suppose in an Irish context, Cork is one of the biggest cities that we have. But like in in reality, like it's still a small enough place where you eventually get to know everyone who's there. And then yeah. it, like it is like really like, kind of like the perfect the perfect setting for the kind of thing that you're trying to organize because everyone's within touching distance. Everybody yeah. basically, basically knows each other already. And yeah. I guess we have come through that period of time where like it, it, as a, as like a community, like it is kind of on the increase with like the amount of opportunities and resources that we have now in the city I think isn't it like yeah and then like acknowledging that in tandem with this other project that I'm involved in which is is more of an international music driven project like seeing that community of Cork evolve with this community of international musicians and for Sounds from a Safe Harbor to work is where the two of those things come together you know, it's like in the way that we all feel the intimacy and familiarity with each other um, as arts practitioners and audience members in Cork. We do, we're do we doing the same thing in this international context with the People Project. And when you bring those two t- things together, there's like a beautiful thing that happens. Like the These international artists feel connected with this place in a weird way because it's all coming from the same energy. Um there's something really nice about like high profile musicians coming to Cork and feeling at home here. Like you have a really good kind of perspective or like vantage point there because you're able to see like how people are interacting and like kind of merging together on an international platform and then how it happens in Cork. Like what's the, what, is there anything that you're like, do you see things that are happening in Cork and you're like, Oh shit, that worked really well. I'll try that on the international stage and then the other way around. No, it's all just about like human contact. It's all in. Re- That's why I have, I'm having such um, a problem personally and emotionally with what's going on right now. Like I, 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 I can't, I can't watch any of these live streams. I can't engage with life in this like social media context. Like it's in real life for me. It's this physical, emotional, like touchy, tactile thing like when we're together we we hold hands right we're like we're just like you're one of those people you just want to grab (laughs) but it's the same it's the same principle with everybody like the thing with cork is like facetime and like talking and figuring it out and the same with these international projects it's like all we're all craving is like facetime in real irl it's like when are we going to be back together in that way it's like it's about the being human and real um, and genuine with each other and, and wanting the same thing to happen. You know, I think if everyone shares the same vision, you're going to get there together. 
yeah, yeah. definitely like that's um such an important thing to hear and actually just on that thing about the human contact and i've said this a couple of times already of to the people i've been chatting to on the podcast in the last week or two like the last time i touched a human being anybody was on the 14th of march it's mad like even like i would even like touch someone's shoulder or anything it's just like <laughs> it was Aww. with the lads and it, it went it was such a mad um contrast because say we had a couple of weeks in Palestine where I was actually bunking in the bed with Alex Sampson for nearly two weeks and then came back to the house here for a few days and it's kind of like I was just trying to get a few things organized just before the trip to America and then all the places where we stayed in America we were bunking in two or three to a bed as well and then came from that to like just being like haven't haven't like had any really good contact with anybody but I started um I think I like kind of as I was saying, like the pod, doing the podcast has been like a, it's just been just such a class way of anything, just communicating with people on some level. But then I also started doing a little bit of work and um, helping out with neighbor food, you know, with the food yeah. collections. So I did like last Saturday was the first one, and uh, it was just so good just to be seeing people face to face. Like you're saying, like it's just such a different thing. Like it's whatever it's, way. It's no replacement. Like it's I I mean this I'm doing Zoom meetings are coming out my whole but it's like it's not the same. It's like and it's lovely to see your face. It's not that it's not lovely to see your face. It's great to see you. But um it's not the same, right? Yeah, it's not it's not the same. And and people encouraging artists to start living and existing in this space is like stop it stop it already those that want to are are doing it because it comes naturally to them but there's so many of my friends that are just completely shut down they're like incubating they're gone into hibernation they're not they're not making they're not creating they're just like we're all going through some kind of transformation right now and you got to be still to let it happen is how they're how they're talking about it you know it's like everyone's got a different way to to deal I guess but um there are certain people who just need that human, literally, like the, the fucking touch of a human being. Yeah. To yeah. And like, it's interesting to hear that perspective as well, because it's, um, I think that maybe like, and with all good intentions, obviously, like it, a lot of people and me included, like have trying to be focusing on the positive things that yeah. like, well, you know, get more time to spend at home and do things that you wouldn't have had a chance to do and stuff like that. But then like the other side of it is like, it is like, really challenging time for everyone mm. like and it's it is like i suppose like it's a different yeah it's like touch and connection like they're just essential things just for everyone regardless yeah of whether I, whether or not you can go online and i actually mark graham who did a podcast with the other day you know from the irish music industry podcast and the king kong company was saying that, like he's maxed out of watching online gigs yeah, yeah. as well and it's not that like I went and seen a few of them. It was class actually to see the Mary Wallopers doing their, their, they were one of the first people to, to do it. Like, and actually at the time I didn't know I got a lot from that because I was just sitting in here, just drinking a couple of cans again, just watching it. And I was like, just even just to see people's comments on the side, you know, mm-hmm. people were checking into the thing and all it was unreal. But then I know what you mean. Like, it's like that there's a whole, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when do you ever see, the way I've been kind of thinking about it is, um, do you ever see when you miss somebody, like it's shit because you're missing, so- you're missing them. But then the more you miss someone, then the, the better it is when you see them again. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of the thing that's been keeping me going as well. Like, I'm like, this is crap. Like we're missing that to get to see 
my family or my friends and stuff like that there. But then I'm just kind of looking at it as if like when I lived in Australia, I missed them. And then when I came back, yeah. like it was unreal, big, massive release to see people again and stuff, whatever. But, um, here, you know the thing you were saying about the being, you know, trying to get outside of four walls and bringing people together and everything out there. Like that's like, that is, it's not, an, I'm trying to get the right way to say it, uh, of putting this, but like, it's a much, I did a podcast with, um, there was a panel of us that did a podcast as part of the Quiet Lights Festival. Um, mm-hmm. John Pearson organized and we did it and plugged. And the, the topic of the panel was kind of like, it, it was about festivals and it was about bringing people together and stuff like that there. And it was people who were kind of involved in um, organizing various festivals and stuff like that there. Uh, and the thing that kind of, I came away with from that, which is something that I'm sure we all kind of know to some degree anyway, is that like, being that person who's working outside of the office and trying to bring people together and trying to like get people from different walks of life to come and merge and like create something. It's like, it's a really like, fuck, it just must be a really stressful thing to do because like when you're in four walls and you've got like, you're working nine to five and then your day finishes five o'clock and these are the things you have to do within that time. It's a much easier way to kind of compartmentalize that in your head. Whereas when you're outside doing stuff like, I don't think your job ever really ends then, does it? Like It never ends, no. Especially when you've more than one event on the books, you know. Like I'm looking, this morning I spent the morning just mapping out 2021 and I have eight, eight festivals next year. Um, and they all, they'll all take a different kind of compartment in my brain and you'd have like hundreds of balls in the air at any one time, you know. You're having to keep everything moving forward all it's 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 bananas but i wouldn't underestimate how crazy the four walls is to like you're constantly programming and um you have in-house productions and you're receiving house and a producing house so it's the same kind of mental honestly it is like it would be the same for the lads saint luke's in the kino you're just it's relentless because you're not really getting enough time to think about that's why that's why it sounds I was like okay if I'm going to do this again I want to give it 24 months so that I can put it away and it can you can have this like quiet um development time because if you're if you're programming annually you're just you're just programming you're not actually thinking about making work you don't have the time to think properly about making work you're reactive all the time so it's kind of the difference between like do you need the creative time and the, the, almost not even thinking about it consciously because I I do believe a lot of a lot of the work is done subconsciously for me anyway like I'll have a eureka moment and it it'll feel like it came from nowhere but then when you analyze it it's been it's been slowly creeping up on me and I've been putting energy into it subconsciously. And then suddenly it's like, oh, Eureka. And it's like, no, it's not actually because of blah, 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 blah. If you trace it back. Um, but that like quiet distillation is really important for my for my creative process anyway. So, yeah, that's so the two year cycle on sounds is like my dream. But yeah. not the other festivals I do is are done in that kind of cycle. That thing you're saying about like having the kind of Eureka moment and then acknowledging the fact that like it's not really a re- eureka moment yeah. because it's been yeah. you know like it's been fermenting in your 
brain mm. for ages or whatever. That's definitely one thing that I, I've noticed, um, you know, like since the whole isolation thing has kicked off is there's way more time for ideas just to ferment a little bit. Whereas in say a couple of months ago, I would have maybe had the beginnings of an idea, but then just been so busy, I just moved on and started doing something different. And then the, yeah. that kind of like seed doesn't get time to germinate or whatever. It just mm. disappears into the space. Whereas yeah. now I, they're kind of coming a little bit more like I'm just thinking like the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about when we reopen the gym and how we're going to relaunch it and stuff like that and even ideas that we've had over the last couple of years we're getting time to like actually like kind of develop them to the stage where they would be able to stand on their own two feet by the time we get through them whereas before we're having all these small ideas but then you might have 10 ideas and maybe only come up with one or whatever one in 20 or whatever that you actually do yeah 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 um, how how did you get involved in, with the the whole like kind of like organizing festivals on an international platform as well? Um, it that probably came about from my relationship with Bryce Dessner. So the very first sounds from a safe harbor was curated by he and I. Bryce is one of the guitar players with the National. Um, we had been in touch since about two thousand and eleven. I was trying to bring him over to to perform as part of a festival I was doing to celebrate Steve Reich's birthday. Uh, and he couldn't come. And then when the national played the marquee in 2013, we, we had a cup of tea together. Um, and about at the end of that two and a half hour cup of tea, we, we decided we were going to make a festival together, which became sounds from safe Harbor. And after that, um, I, it was one of the last events I did as part of my contract in the opera house. Um, and I started managing Bryce. So he, in addition to playing in the band, the National, he's a contemporary classical composer. So I was like managing everything outside of the band. Um, and we started this people project in 2016 in Berlin, which I produced. And through that met like um, Justin Vernon from Bunny there and like hundreds and hundreds of musicians and started then working with Justin and doing everything that he would do outside of Bon Iver and everything the lads would do outside of the National. And we started the Haven Festival in Copenhagen. I started working in music now in Cincinnati. Justin's hometown festival is called Eau Claire. I'm, now, I'm the director of that now as well. And, and in addition to those kind of annual events, we do these people projects around the world where we'd invite anything between like 25 and 100 musicians, maybe more. The 2018 version in Berlin was 280 musicians. We bring artists together for a week just to experiment and collaborate and see what happened and put on a festival at the end. So I've been running them, uh, and it's non—it's non-stop. We've got a—we've got an event in New York next year, Moscow, Helsinki, Poland, Cincinnati, Eau Claire. Um, Paris, there's like events coming out of our events. <laughs> like yeah. all the things that you described there, and even just from like, um, like um, uh, from getting the, the in person experience of sounds and stuff like that, like they all sound like they're quite unique concepts. Mm-hmm. It's not just like we're having a festival this weekend and, and this no. is the lineup and these are the gigs and that's it. We don't do it that way. They're all like they're all residency based projects. So for each and every one of them, we bring a constellation of artists together for for a week 
to develop new projects. So the Eau Claire Festival, which we just decided not to do in July, we had we had 80 people coming, 80 artists, and we were going to be premiering all new work. Like Leslie Feist was making a new project. Kurt Wagner from Lamptop was making a new project. Like it was the most exciting version of anything we were about to do, but we had to pull it. So disappointing. Last Friday was a shit day. <laughs> we cancelled Music Now, which had Moses Sumney and Halada Negro and, and Leslie again. And it was just, but that said, we will do all of those projects next year. So, yeah, well, we don't do the cut and paste. Like people is kind of, and all of the festivals that we do are created a, to provide an alternative to this like touring life that these guys lead all the time. Like oftentimes they're on stage and they can't remember where they are. It's cut and paste all the time. It's in and out, pack up the tour bus, off you go again. Whereas they wanted to create for themselves an alternative way to be. Um, and I, like we do put the artists first, like we're artist first, audience second. But if you get it right for the artist, the audience is going to have a great time. Um, so yeah, we're, our kind of uniqueness is in how we make them. What's the, what's the driving kind of force behind that? Like to make those kind of unique festivals? To, it's uh, ultimately to provide an alternative to the musicians, just to, to give them an, another way to be, uh, to be involved in a festival. You know, they get to they get to evolve as artists. They get to develop their practice. They get to make these um, connections with other musicians, but not just for music making, for mental health, for like community building. Like we we do feel like a family. We're evolving this kind of tribe of people around the world that can fall into each other anytime. Like we're we're literally available for them for anything. Um, like I, I would be on the phone most days to some, some of them, whatever, whatever it is they want to work through. But, um, yeah, it's as, it's as much, a, like a community of friends as it is community of collaborators and music makers, but it's, uh, it's changed many of these artists' lives. Like Leslie, it's a whole for how she makes music because Sorry, of it. You just broke up there. So um, you just said about it changed people's lives Les, and then just kind of broke Les, up. Yeah. Um, Leslie Feist being a prime example, like it's, it changed everything about how she makes music and how she wants to be in the world. Like she just, everything has shifted for her having had the experience of the people project. Um, like it literally just shows you a new way to be. Um, it's very hard to articulate. You need to kind of live it to, to understand it. Like, when I when I call an artist to invite them in, they're like, I sound like a mental person, the way I have to speak about it. But it genuinely does. It's a kind of a transcendent experience. It sounds totally hippy-dippy, but it is for real, like, life-changing. Every time we do them, I, I, I leave altered by them. Does it sound so kind of mental because of the fact that it's so different from what else is already out there. Is that? Yeah. And their artists are so, they're so hungry for it. Like they just want, it's that thing. I get back to that. Like it's human, real, um, the in real life experience too is non-hierarchical. If you don't care who you are, or how many platinum records you have, like if you're, if you're coming to participate, 
you eat with everybody, you're all staying in the same place. There's no VIP anything, nothing. We're all just like equal, we're just people. That's why it's called people. Like we're literally just human beings doing this thing together. It sounds like, so, uh, you can tell me what, what you think of it. You should have this in my head just from listening to you talking about it now. Like, so would it be fair to say that that kind of like touring, that really hardcore kind of touring uh, circuit that a lot of our artists have to do, whether they're you know, like trying to get a foothold with their, um, you know, trying to get a foothold in the industry, or they're like more even, uh, there are years on the road in one form or another, there's that touring circuit where, like, like you say, you turn up, you unpack, you do the sound check, come back later, do the gig, pack it up again, hit the road, and then go to the next place. Is that, like, so it sounds like that kind of model is very much got to do with, like, the commodification of the artist as kind of like a money-generating thing for for all the gigs they're doing, and then they, yeah. they get paid, and then the people who are putting the shows on or the festivals on also get paid and then it just keeps going around like that where it just it sounds like there's kind of like a different motive or a different set a, a focus on different value kind of different yeah. values or something in the in the kind of like the way that you describe the mm-hmm. events that you guys are putting on where it's like everyone's eating together and there's time for like artists to, to collaborate with each other and to get to know each other and to create stuff as part of the festival whereas like really like that's a rarity really to, that that artists or performers get to create anything when yeah, they go no, to festivals they don't generally they don't get to do that but um what we're finding now that we've been doing it for the last four years now is the the collaborations that we initiate are they're much bigger than the event. Like they go on past the event. You see all these like bands come or constellations coming back together in different ways. And you see the effects of these events happening like all over the world. It's an, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. The other thing is like when you talk about commodity and economics, like everybody gets exactly the same. Everyone gets paid exactly the same. So whatever the budget and the event can allow is split across anyone working on the project. Um, and there's something really nice about that too. It's like everyone, even though without a doubt, there are artists who can elevate emerging artists and like make them part of something to make their, you know, get this fast track them into the mainstream. Um, that's enough, another lovely kind of knock on effect of this thing is like how they can all affect each other positively. But then that that is such a rewarding thing for the established artists to do too. Like they they feel everyone feels great like, because they do this thing. Yeah. It, like what you're talking about really like is doesn't just apply to like festivals really. Like this is something that could apply to anything in life. Like when we're living in the era of like hyper commodification of people in general, just as workers, it's like yeah. and a lot of the time people are made work. And their only purpose is to like get their job done so that they're kind of like improving the bottom line for whoever they're working for, really. Like, and yeah, I mean, the thing, the back to the like the cut and paste situation, like it has become a vital thing for a lot of, of like, so then you're not just talking about like, as an example, the band, the national, they have maybe 50 families that they're 
providing for outside of the band, you know, same with Bonnie Vare. It's like it becomes this industry around them that they, so they have to do this like monotonous and it is hard on them. It is hard. And I don't know how creatively rewarding it is. Um, obviously, obviously when they're looking for an alternative, they need, they need something else to, you know, so to be able to be part of that alternative is incredible. Like I run these things, I curate them with the guys and find the, find this, the, the points of intersection for artists and find their, help them find their way in and to like guide, uh, a, a, you know, heroes of mine into this, into this project has just been, I've had so many like pinching myself and biting my tongue going on my, my dead. This is actually happening in front of me. But like, it's a totally, it's a totally revolutionary concept. Like, yeah, 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 totally. It's incredible, you know. And they, they become like literally before you rang, like Leslie Feist FaceTimed me, and I was like, I gotta ring you back. (laughs) Um, Or you know, just they're, they're like, they're my, they're my people now. You know, we are, we're, we're each other's people. We're so important to each other. You know, Justin, uh, Aaron and Bryce, we're all like, they're my best friends. It's incredible. It's like real, like, how the fuck did this happen? But it's, it's insane. It's beautiful. But that's where the magic happens really though, isn't it? Like it's when you're working with people who, that you love like that, like is creates something way more magic than when you're just working with someone who you're just working with because somebody else said you have to work with them. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a job. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I think from me, from my side too, it doesn't feel like a job. It just feels like it absolutely feels like making magic. Um, yeah, I just feel so lucky. So fucking lucky every day that I get to do this. That's like, I I couldn't imagine doing anything else now. I feel like all of the things that I've done, in my life up to now, you know, music, I have a music degree, I did a master's in ethnomusicology, I worked in venues, I ran ensembles, I did like all these different things that it just feels like I never had a plan. I just like followed my gut all the way through my life and got to this point where I'm like, oh, that's why I did all that shit. That's why I fucking did the specials counter in Burger King and I packed ice cream. You know, it's just all of those things have given me different kind of capacities in my mind that like, let me have these multiple things going all the time, but then get into the, getting into the detail, the creative detail with everybody and being able to have that music level conversation with them too. is like super important. And the fun factor, like we have so much fun together. It's like, there's no doses allowed. No one coming in with notions about themselves. Like they all have to be told, like you will get the door if you think you need special treatment, nobody gets it. You know, we're all in this together. Um, but it, it always works out so well. Yeah, it's beautiful. And like, I'm actually, and it's something that I've said, just said, believed from the very beginning from whenever I started doing these podcasts is like, one of my favorite things about, about it is like getting to speak to people who I already know and asking questions and like having chats and stuff and fit, you know, like learning more about people that I already kind of knew. And I'm actually fucking delighted that we got to have this mm. chat because like, uh, just a kind of, I kind of sense that, you know, so from, from hanging around Sounds from the Safe Harbor last year, that like, I kind of get the feeling I'm probably, I can see a couple of people in my head whenever I say this are probably going to be nodding at their 
computer or their phone or whatever, like kind of sense that like you go about doing your work and don't really like being in the the limelight of like getting credit for doing stuff, which is like I feel like this is kind of I'm. Honest, I think I'm. I think I've just tricked you into like telling your story a little bit so people can hear it more. <laughs> <laughs> well, we ordinarily wouldn't do this. I know. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Anna, I can't say no to Anna. <laughs> I was thinking there's a good chance Mary's going to tell me to fuck off here when I ask her to do this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, oh, so I'm glad that we're doing it now. See that thing you were saying about um, uh, the. No, it's fu- really funny because it's something. The kind of same thing happened to me today. Just, uh, I think it kind of relates to what you're saying about you no, know, like doing all the work you've done in the past. There, this is this is how come this is what I got from working at Burger King. Blah blah. blah. Somebody sent me a picture today of me whenever I was. I must have only been about thirteen or something like that. Uh, yeah, I guess thirteen or maybe fourteen or something. Uh, of me. In, in a Christmas pantomime in Belfast uh, and I, just it was me and another one of the girls who was in it I remember like I mean I haven't thought about that in years and I have never seen a picture of myself on the stage of all the plays that I did back then and it was with my dad's theatre company Ashley and Gare and this particular pantomime like he basically was just like right so this is the story of the pantomime. I was like, right, well, uh, where's the script? He's like, but there is no script. And then he's like, right, good luck. And it was like, we were doing it. Like, we, I think we did a run of like, maybe like something like 10 days in a row and the schools were coming in, you know? So there was like, I mean, a hundred, a hundred or 150 people every time we did it or something like that. And, um, just when, when I seen that picture today, I just th- looked at it and I was like, I didn't obviously realize it at the time because, they're, they're just it was just like you had to show up and you had to do it like but looking back now like that's such a valuable lesson and like being well, able to like go with the flow and pick up and go with somebody yep. else's flow or decide you're going to change it a little bit and then always still having to keep the show on the road because you're doing it a play like that where there's no script you can't just stop to have a think about what you're going to say like you have to just keep going which yeah, is like yeah, a yeah. kind of like a valuable life lesson now like that i think totally. about it yeah yeah deep end stuff like i was 12 when I got my first job and my, my parents told me to go get a, a, a job in the sweet shop. And I was such an awkward, like preteen. I couldn't talk to anybody. I could literally couldn't talk to a stranger. And next thing I'm behind the counter and having to deal with change and my hands are shaking. But it was the best thing for me. Like in, when in the moment I was like, this is this is torture. Like, why are they doing this to me? Why can't they just give me my pocket money? But I had to go out and earn it for myself. But it, it, the life lesson in that, like I can look back at that and go, that and like all of my, my freaking 20 years bartending just gave me the capacity to just talk, talk to a stranger. Just like start up a conversation and mean it. Not like take the superficial bullshit off it. Just like get get into it fast. Because that's the other thing with this project is I have to develop trust with these people so fast. And they all have through years and years and years of like whatever experiences they've had, but like they, they have walls up, you know, and I got to find a way to knock them down so that we can get into like, get into it quicker and get into the, like the music and the projects and the, like, there's a lot of emotion a lot of emotional stuff that has to come out to break down the wall, to get them to create. And um, yeah, I just feel like if I trace back through all of the jobs and experiences They've all they've all etched inched me for, towards like the, the potential of all of this. Yeah, that's like 
I, I guess that we're going to sound like two flipping old ancient people thinking about back back about all the jobs we had when we were kids and all. <laughs> but like, I started working in um, a restaurant when I was fourteen, and to me, like that was one of the most valuable experiences ever. Like taking orders and like you say like dealing with the money and stuff which was used to freak me out at the time like yeah, yeah. and then you know like being able to make a human connection with somebody yeah. and now thinking about whenever people are coming to work in the gym i think there's been about um i think maybe 17 or something people that have, have come through the worked in the gym in one capacity or another since it started and like it's it's a fairly strong trend that the people who have like retail or um customer service experience in like cafes and stuff like that or in shops or always have a head start in terms of being able to build that connection with someone straight away or build it sooner you know and like that's something it's probably something i've kind of like been able to develop somewhat with the podcast as well because it's it's easy when you're doing a podcast with one of your mates you just basically turn the thing on hit record and just start having a chat like the same we probably could have just had this chat of a regular day. It yeah. would probably be the same chat, you know, not, it would probably would not change at all, even if you weren't doing a podcast. Whereas when you're doing it with someone who you don't really know, then the first, the first challenge is to get the chat to the stage where you're kind of having a chat with them as if you do know them for ages. Yeah. And yeah. Just yeah. An open kind of conversation and it's having a laugh as well. Like, which is kind of, I kind of think that's what you're talking about as well. Totally. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 You got to get real fast. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's all a load of bullshit, you know. It's like, can we just, how, what do we need to do to get past that and get real with each other, you know? I, I kind of get the sense that, like, you're, <laughs> not get the sense you said it earlier, you're kind of struggling with, like, not having the whole element of, like, human contact and stuff like that there. And I mean, I'm sure, like, a lot of people who are listening to this and who know you and know the stuff that you've done would agree with this, that, like, whenever we get the chance to go and meet each other again, like, all the stuff that you do as valuable as it has been up until now is going to be like a million times more valuable and more precious when we get the chance to fucking go and do the stuff again so um it's like uh i just want to say like thanks for everything that you've done so far and like i fucking can't wait until we get to be and go meet each other again like um, hug and fucking please the shit out of everybody i know yeah (laughs) I do feel this time is seriously essential, though. I think, like, the world is just getting a kick up the hole. Um, we'd lost the run of ourselves. Like, I was I was flying all over the fucking place. I was in Moscow two weeks before the shutdown. Like, it's I was about to fly into the States. Um, mental. Like, I do think great, great things are going to come from this time. I do think we're all going through some kind of transformation. And the world will be different. But uh, hopefully in a good way. I do think so. Yeah, and I'm ex- I'm so excited about all these events. I was taking them for granted, I think, too, because they were just coming and coming and coming. And on to the next one, on to the next one. Oh, I'll fly there. I'll go to Santa Fe. I'll go to wherever. And now it's like, I don't know when the next one's going to be. And by Christ, I can't wait. And it's going to... And the artists can't wait. And everyone desperately needs it. Yeah. yeah. So as soon as we can... It's going to be outrageous. It, I, I'm just thinking of the last time that we seen each other. It was actually in this house just before Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At like five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so uh, I can't wait for the next festival, but I also can't wait for the next just like get together where we're just like all <laughs> having laughs like that until the next day. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, here, I'll let you go and get ready for your next call anyway. Grand War. Um, <laughs> I'll see you soon.
This is chapter three of Charles McGlinchey's The Last of the Name. The first chapter is at the very end of episode 67 and the second chapter is at the end of episode 68, which is the one right before this one. And this is chapter three. It's a class book, by the way, just gives a window into a time that has a, a time that has passed, really, and I've read this book a couple of times now. This is my third time reading through it and uh, there's a lot of lessons to be taken from it and it's just a beautiful window into that time, into the life, different aspects of the life. This chapter's called The Land. Horseback was the only way of going a journey. There were a few jaunting cars. They used to have a pillion on behind the saddle for a woman to ride pillion. She held on to the man's coat. At weddings, it was common enough to see a score or maybe two score people on horseback. I heard my father saying, the time Mulchi Doherty got married, they were galloping hard and beating races down the Glen Road, and one of the women fell off at Bandu, and they never missed her till they reached Arda. Mulchi had a brother they called Charles Rowe, and he didn't know his own strength. They were ploughing one day, and one of the horses took sick, so Charlie loosed her out of the plough. He stepped into it himself, and got the tugs over his shoulders, and he pulled the plough till nightfall, along with the other horse. He said it would be a poor man who couldn't take his turn alongside of a horse for a while of a day. I remember when most of the farm work was done with spades, and any ploughs were going were wooden ones. They would be drawn by two horses, like the one Charlie Rowe yoked into. The first iron plough from Minchilock to Meendorn Bridge was one Needy McGinney got, and the second belonged to Brian Roddy. On the same tack, I remember the time there were upwards of 50 horses and now there aren't more than three. The potatoes were set in ridges and kibbed and all dug with a spade. The corn was all cut with a shearing hook. The hook had teeth like a saw but later on the sharp hook came in. A good shearer could cut 25 stuck in a day. Huey Gubbin was the best shearer I knew of. He could cut 30 stooks at his ease. He worked with a man named Elkin in Terman. Elkin could cut 25 stook before dinner time and then lay down in the sun till the evening and then he went around and stooked all, the, all he cut earlier in the day. Huey and Elkin could give a pass to the rats. He'd write something on a bit of paper and the first rat who got the paper would tell the others and they'd all head over to the lane to the next farm and away from Elkins. Huey was always telling wonderful things about rats and witterets or stoats. The corn was always threshed with the flail and then everyone made a malder of wheat for the winter. 
There was a meal mill and a scotch mill in clay at that time belonging to Lahan. And a lead to the Gordfad River kept on going. Both the mills were roofed with slates from McDade's quarry and Ballantleave. Most of the slate houses about here long ago were roofed with the slates from the same quarry. There was little money in circulation in times gone by. People spent little and saved whatever they could make on crops or cattle or lint or butter. The run of wages was sixpence to ten pence a day. There was a boy hired in Termin at four pounds. It was the talk of the parish that anyone could earn such money as that. That was about the time I was born. Nobody was very much better off than the other, except the landlords. They were on top of the world. Anybody that had a killing or a nest egg passed them, had it in gold and kept it about the house. I heard my father saying that when paper money came in first, nobody had any belief in it. There was a man called Michal and Orr in my grandfather's time and he had a comfortable way on him and he had money passed him in gold. That was how he got his name. At that time, there was a man in the Glen House by the name of Niall Sean Doherty and he got the loan of £100 in gold sovereigns from Michal. After some time, he was paying him back but it was in paper money and a devil a bit of Michal would take it back till he got it in gold the way he gave it to Niall Sean. And as far as I know, he never got it from that day till this. In my father's early days, there was only one shop in the whole parish. It belonged to James Shields and was the only house in the cross at the time. The wall stairs are there yet. He was married to a daughter of Neil Rowe Doherty. Shields went to Derry once a week or so with an imitation of a cart with black wheels for whatever groceries would be wanted. Soap or sugar or salt or tea. Before that, up to about 1820 or so, the only commodities coming into the parish were iron and leather. Big Paddy Doherty of Cheerhoran and Andy Porter of, Galli- of Gaddy Duff, now Clonmany, and carters from Ballyliffin and Urris went to Derry regularly with cartloads of butter in butts and the only goods they had back was a supply of leather. It would be cut in soles and uppers and tied in bundles for different shoemakers that sent the orders with them. Later on, women went along with the carts to Derry and took back baskets of goods and went around selling the goods from house to house with their baskets on their arm. You could buy tea and sugar or soap or needles or pins from them. Anne Juan McCarrine went round the glen and took one side going up and the other side coming down. In my mother's time, a man went around Urus buying eggs at three pence a dozen. As he bought them, he packed them in a creel and carried them on his back to James Shield's shop at the cross. The roads at the time were only the name of roads. There was no order on them and they wouldn't bear a heavy load. There was little traffic on them except the dairy carts and they had, they had thick wheels half the time with no iron shodding at all. People mostly took their corn and things in a sack thrown across a horse's back or else they used side creels or a slip car with a big cash creel on it. The slip car had no wheels but was pulled along on runners. The only fixings the road got was a shovel of blue clay or gravel here and there where they would be giving way. In the summertime, there would be loads of clouds of dust after horses or traffic of any kind. The seasons were better than now, and the weather was dead and warm in the summers long ago. The people used to call the last half of July and the first half of August the Miwarov, or the dead month. It was a time of great heat and flies and clegs. The cattle used to startle with the heat and flies and stick their tails in the air and run before them all over the hill, a thing I didn't see happening for a long time till the summer of 1949. In those days, the roads in the wintertime would take a cart to the axle, for there was no regulation on them such as now. In my father's time, Jimmy Butler was overseer for roads in these parts. He was the same butlers as the butlers of Grouse Hall, 
and it was likely through their influence that he got the job. Jimmy was married to a woman called Myra Morrison. One day Myra was down along the, the road <clears throat> somewhere and she was attacked by a dunty cow and nearly killed her till some Clonmany man was passing and drove the cow off. When Myra reached home and told all that had happened, the ones in the house said, She gia hen a howl to. T'was God himself that saved you. But Myra said, Manum hen nor a vayak faras Indeed it wasn't, but a Clonmany man. The people in times ago were innocent. Jimmy Butler had a big family. There was Rachel and Rebecca and Norton and Daniel. They likely took their names from the Grouse Hall people. Another thing the carts took from Derry was iron for the blacksmiths. Blacksmithing was a great trade at the time. They shod the horses and made gates and hinges and crooks and tongs or whatever was needed. They made their own coal too, for there was no coal brought into the parish till about the time I was born. They made a kind of coal out of turf. The turfs were heaped up, maybe three or four cartloads, in long low heaps and covered with sods or clay or clabber, the same as you'd cover a pit of potatoes. They were lit then and would smoulder away for a day and a night, or maybe longer, but they had to be kept airtight or they would all burn to ashes. I remember my father going out at night to cover in one of the heaps where the blaze was breaking through. During the last war, when smitty coal couldn't be got, there wasn't a man in the parish could make the coal from turf as they did a hundred years ago. The wheelwright and saddler and cooper and weaver are other trades that are nearly a thing of the past. In my grandfather's time, that would have been about 1800 or thereabouts, people in the different parts of the parish used to take the cattle and the pigs to the mountains for the summer months. It was only the women and children went, and Patrick's Day was the time for setting out. They built huts to live in called bohogs, and the remains of these bohogs in some old pig houses can be seen about the hills yet. There's a place in Cloughine Bog called the Bohogs, and it's where the people from that part took their cattle. William Grant's grandmother was born in one of those Bohogs in Cloughine. The pigs and cattle would graze through other. The women would milk the cows and make the butter. Some of them stored the butter in the soft moss, and turf men often came on a lump of it when cutting turf. I got a lump of five pounds myself, and it melted into oil with the heat of the fire. The men and growing lads stayed at home and worked at the crops trenching a field for corn or lint, and making a ridge for potatoes. They used to trench a field and burn whatever was growing on it, and sow corn. The ashes made great manure. At that time, low-lying ground was soft and boggy, for want of proper drains, and the water seeped down and lodged there, so the people went in for working the higher ground near the hills. You'll often see marks of ground that was worked in times ago, where the heather spread over again. Butter making was a great industry at the time, and down till of later years. Cattle were better for milk long ago. The breeds they had suited the country better, though mad bulls and dunty cows were far more common long ago through sib breeding. A springing heifer in my time fetched five pounds or six pounds, but before that, in the famine times, they were as low as 25 shillings, with a sheep at four shillings sixpence. They would have six or seven pounds of butter to a churning, and the butter was packed in butts and salted. In Paddy Roddy's, I seen butts of butter built up over the lip with a cloth tied over it. They would weigh over eight stone and would be two or three months gathering. The butter long ago was sold in the butter market in Derry and later in Carn, and went for four shillings to six shillings a pound. No woman was considered fit for marrying if she wasn't a good butter maker and a good spinner. They had pet names for the cows, Branny, Starry and Molly. When a woman would be milking, she always called the cow Creog or Sweetheart. Shasheart and Shinna Creog, stand over there, sweetheart, she would say. 
When the land was cut up about 1841 and 1842, everyone with a farm adjoining the mountain had a right of grazing over the mountain common. My father was entitled to graze over 114 acres, two roods and 20 square perches of the grazing in Bulaba, and he had a stint of three sums. A sum consisted of six sheep, or three-year-old sturks, or a one-year-old heifer. As far as I know, all commons were stinted in sums like that. I know Clocarna Green in Ballyleffin is stinted. Anybody putting on more than the right stint could be prevented, and if you hadn't stuck, you could sell your stint to anybody else. In my father's time and before it, people went in greatly for bleeding cattle in the summertime. They boiled the blood with oaten meal, and it was very nourishing. For drawing the blood, they used a thing called a pair of flames. It had three blades with a spur at the back of each. The blades were of different sizes, the small ones for young cattle, and the others for older ones, two-year-olds or four-year-olds. They used to keep bullocks till they'd be five or six-year-old. A rope was tied around the animal's neck and a vein would swell till it would be as thick as a man's thumb. The spur was put on top of the vein and the man gave it a knock with a stick. The blood came out and was kept in a piggin. They took a quart or so of blood at a time. The two sides of the cut were then squeezed together and a pin pushed through and swelled or wrapped around with a, with a thread. After a day or two, the cut was healed and the pin was taken out. The old people said the stirk wouldn't start to thrive till it was bled. In the summertime, when the cattle were all outliers in the hill, people had to sit up at night and watch or their cattle would be bled to death. My father was a good hand at bleeding cattle, but it was done away with since my time. Chapter 4. Pochin. The revenue police were appointed after the wars of Napoleon. They were for putting down Pachin. Pachin making was a great industry at that time. It was all made from malt, and malt making was hard, troublesome work. The barley had to be steeped in a dam and then left near the fire and turned over till it got warmed a bit. Then it was spread on the barn floor till it started to bud. As soon as the buds appeared, it was kiln-dried and grounded in a mill and steeped in barrels to ripen before it would be ready for running. There was no better drink than malt whiskey if the fence or the dregs was kept out of it. Lots of houses had malt houses in times ago. The old houses belonging to the Grants of Clock Finn was the first stone house in these parts and was built about 1810. Under the room floor is a cellar for malt and you get into it by lifting a flat stone in the floor between the beds. After the revenue police were appointed, the nearest barracks of them was in Derry and they used to make raids on horseback in different parts of the parish for putchings or stills. When the old people were afraid of raids, they used to put a plank on the road with an iron rod sticking up on it. And when they put their ear to the end of the rod, they could hear the revenue men galloping their horses as far away as Buncrana nearly. When a still or worm or potching was got any place, a fine was levied over the whole quarterland, where the earlish or the instrument was found. With the fines and all, people took to making potching away in the hills. Glashidi Island was another great hide, even down to my own day. One time the men came in from the island with a run of potching and the revenue men came on them and seized the whole lot. But some men about Mullock, who spent a while in the navy, heard about the seizure and came down through Mullock Ray and attacked the police and took every drop from them again. The men were well armed with sticks and the revenue men were afraid of them. All of the old potching makers threw the first glass away. They said it was for the furries, and if they kept them on their land, they would warn them some way if the revenue men were coming. The revenue men were for nothing else but putting down potching. Later on, there was a big barrack of revenue men 
in Gaddy Duff. There were 35 men and a sergeant at one time. The inside wall of the old barrack was built of turf. After a seizure of Potchin, an officer came down from Bunkrana to see that all the whiskey was spilled down a grating. But the men had a tub under the grating. And before the officer was out of sight, they were all enjoying themselves and had in some neighbours they were great with. Before the time of the revenue police, the country was patrolled by soldiers known as the Light Horse. I think there was a regiment of them about Carn or Mallon. They used to come out about Pollen Green to catch poachers, for rabbits and game of all kinds belonged to the landlord. They chased Seamus Andreas one night to the top of Binion Hill, but he hid on them behind Ban Namadu, the dog's cliff. Another time the Redcoats made a raid for Potchin and Morrison's in Strayed. There was a big party going on, and when the alarm got up, all the men went outside and left the women inside to hide the whiskey. The soldiers ordered the women to open the door, but they refused, and the soldiers put their bayonets through the door. But as the blades came through, the women broke them off with an iron bar that they had. At the heel of the hunt, the officer in charge, he was the name of Dalziel, climbed up on the roof and started going down the chimney. The men outside called to the women in Irish, Kai kohan the lapis a china, throw the bed straw on the fire. So the women put two or three armfuls on the fire and smoked Dalziel out of the chimney and burnt the clothes off his back. It was long after that that the ordinary police were established. They were called peacemen and were for keeping down fights between people and rows and disorder of any kind. The revenue men were all Protestants, and so were the peacemen in the beginning. I don't remember much potching being made from malt. It was mostly made from sugar and treacle in any time. Three or four stone of sugar would make three gallons of good whiskey and a half a gallon of fence. Many a time I made a run myself. A glass of good potching punched was a great remedy in times of sickness.